I'm Eunice. Um, I'm going to be reading for you today. So it's from Ecclesiastes 2, 22-315. What do people get for all the toil and anxious striving with which they labour labor under the sun? All their days their work is grief and pain. Even at night their minds do not rest. This too is meaningless. A person can do nothing better than to eat and drink and find satisfaction in their own toil. This too, I see, is from the hand of God. For without him, who can eat or find enjoyment? To the person who pleases him, God gives wisdom, knowledge and happiness. But to the sinner, he gives the task of gathering and storing up wealth to hand it over to the one who pleases God. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. There is a time for everything and a season for every activity under the heavens. A time to be born and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to uproot. A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to tear down and a time to build. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to scatter stones and a time to gather them. A time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. A time to search and a time to give up. A time to keep and a time to throw away. A time to tear and a time to mend. A time to be silent and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. A time for war and a time for peace. What do workers gain from their toil? I have seen the burden God has laid on the human race. He has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the human heart. Yet no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. I know that there is nothing better for people than to be happy and to do good while they live, that each of them may eat and drink and find satisfaction in all their toil. This is the gift of God. I know that everything God does will endure forever. Nothing can be added to it and nothing taken from it. God does it so that people will fear him. Whatever is has already been, and what will be has been before, and God will call the past to account. Thanks, Eunice. Well, last week uh, we began a series of four talks on the book of Ecclesiastes. Uh, and we saw that the teacher, who looks uh, a lot like Solomon, the richest, wisest and most successful king of Israel, we saw him raise a critical question. Namely, what do people gain from all their labours at which they toil under the sun? Or as he puts it elsewhere, what profit is there from the business of life? I wanted to see what was good for people to do under the heavens during the few days of their lives, he said. And when he talks about good here, he's not really talking about, I wanted to find out what was morally good. He's talking about what's good, like what's worthwhile. And in the end, we saw that he reached the conclusion that while life is indeed a very big business, it's a business that is incapable of turning a profit. Because in the end, no matter what you do, death will take everything from you. And so what's the point of doing anything? I mean, here you are, you're studying hard at uni, putting in all that effort to become a doctor or a lawyer, an engineer, a scientist, a poet, a scholar. But really, in the end, 
you'll end up with exactly the same as the person who put no effort in at all. You'll both end up with nothing. Nothing lasts. Everything slips through your fingers. It's all vapour. Death takes it all. And so last week, I left you with the slightly awkward uh, task of working out what was doing, what was worth doing after I told you there was nothing worth doing. To think hard about why it's not worth thinking hard. In the first two chapters, the teacher of Ecclesiastes does sound quite despairing. But if you were paying attention, if you were reading through the first couple of chapters, you might have noticed that actually there are moments of light in the midst of the darkness. The occasional glimmer of hope. So here's one uh, example from chapter 2, verse 10. I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. My heart took delight in all my labour. And this was the reward for all my toil. So there it is. In the midst of all his work, there actually was some delight. There was some reward for all his effort. No profit, mind you, nothing that he could actually take out of life, but real genuine joy in life. Maybe you've uh, felt that yourself. You've done a hard afternoon of mowing the lawn or writing an essay or creating a piece of art. And when you're done, you sit down and you feel really good. You feel like, this is great. My eight-year-old daughter ran her first triathlon uh, on the weekend. And at the end of it, she said, I feel really pleased with myself. (laughs) And that's right. (laughs) There is real joy and satisfaction to be had in life. Until you stop and ask yourself, what profit is there? What do you really gain from running a triathlon? Does anything about it last? Well, no. What about mowing the lawn? No, that's pointless. (laughs) The grass is just going to grow back and you have to do it all again in a couple of weeks. Essays may get you through uni and they'll get you a job, perhaps. But what does that get you? Well, ultimately nothing. Because you die and everything that you worked for, you have to leave. And when you realise that, the delight that you had in the midst of your work just kind of turns to ashes, doesn't it? Much like you will turn to ashes. For dust you are and to dust you will return, as the teacher says in chapter 3, verse 20, quoting God, speaking to Adam in Genesis chapter 3. Because when you think about it, life is really a lot like Monopoly. Uh, You can have a lovely time playing Monopoly. You go round and round the board and you do deals and you buy properties and you accumulate houses and hotels and you have great fun trying to win. But at the end of the game, you have this sort of realisation that you're just the same as everyone else because you can't take any of your winnings with you. Monopoly money doesn't transfer into the real world. It was fun at the time, but there's really no profit. Because in the end, both the game and you go back in a box. 
and you get buried. One goes in the back of the game's cupboard, the other goes six feet under the ground. At the end of the day, we all go back in the box. So there's a real tension here in Ecclesiastes. In chapter 1, verse 13, the teacher, seeing how death makes all our work futile, declares what a heavy burden God has laid on mankind. But then in chapter 2, verse 24, he says, a person can do nothing better than to eat and drink and find satisfaction in their own toil. This too, I see, is from the hand of God. For without him, who can eat or find enjoyment? And then in verse 26 of chapter 2, he puts both together and he says, to the person who pleases him, God gives wisdom, knowledge and happiness. But to the sinner, he gives the task of gathering and storing up wealth to hand it over to the one who pleases God. But if you've been following the teacher this far, well, the obvious question is, hang on a minute. Doesn't the person who pleases God have to hand over everything they've worked for too? And like we saw last week, just because you please God doesn't mean you get to take your car or your house or your family with you when you die. So what's the difference? How can the one who pleases God in the end really be any different from the sinner, the one who rebels against God? Is there actually a way to enjoy wisdom and knowledge and happiness instead of merely accumulating stuff to hand over to others? Well, if that's the question that you're pondering, the good news is that in chapter 3 of Ecclesiastes, we actually get the answer. So chapter 3, just like chapter 1, begins with a poem. Uh, And this is one of those rare times where all those compare and contrast essays that you had to write for English actually come in handy. Because you can compare and contrast these two poems. Each kind of reminds you of the other. So chapter 1, we read the sun rises and the sun sets and hurries back to where it rises. The wind blows to the south and turns to the north, round and round it goes, ever returning on its course. All streams flow into the sea, yet the sea is never full. Then in chapter 3, we read there's a time for everything and a season for every activity under the heavens, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to uproot, a time to kill and a time to heal, etc., etc., etc. And you can't help noticing that there's a kind of circularity to both poems. Things go round and round and round. Rivers flow to the sea, the sea's never full. There's a time for this, there's a time for that. But there's a significant contrast in them as well. Because in chapter 1, there's not really any purpose behind it. It's just the mindless cycles of nature just going round and round and round. But in chapter 3, the teacher realises, no, hang on, there's something going on here. There actually is some kind of purpose. He can't quite see the whole plan of God, but he notices that sometimes in life you seem to hit the sweet spot. Maybe you've sort of felt that before yourself. You've 
you've had that opportunity where it was a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to make the perfect joke at the perfect time and you hit it out of the park. And that is a great feeling. Or sometimes you wake up in the night and you think, there was that opportunity and I missed it. I mucked it up. There's a right time and a wrong time for everything. Maybe there was a time where a friend was hurt and you sat down and you cried with them and it was exactly the right thing to do. On the flip side, you meet someone and you go in for the hug and then too late you realise they're not a hugger and you're kind of caught in that, oh no! And there's a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. (laughs) There's a time to search for something on Google and there's a time where... You really should have called it quits about an hour ago. A time to negotiate with a hostage taker and there's a time to send in the SAS. But what does that tell you about life? If the little gear of our plan sometimes runs smoothly and sometimes it really crunches, what does that tell you? I think what the teacher's saying is that it tells you that there's another gear out there A bigger gear, the gear of God's plans that is turning, turning constantly. And sometimes we find ourselves in sync with God's plans and everything just feels easy and it's sweet and it's good. And other times it just crunches. But either way, it tells you that there is that bigger gear there. It's unseen, but it is real. Things aren't mindless. There is a purpose for it all, including a purpose for death. And so in chapter 3, verse 9, the teacher returns to his initial question from the start of chapter 1. What do workers gain from their toil? And he starts to lay out his findings. That's not working. Here we go. Uh, He starts to lay out his findings. I've seen the burden that God has laid on the human race. And he starts to break it down for us. Point one. God has made everything beautiful in its time. That's really what the poem of chapter three is about, isn't it? He discovers that God is not chaotic evil. He's not even chaotic good. In the midst of suffering, there's beauty and purpose behind what God is doing. And point two, he set eternity in the human heart. That is, we long to live forever so that our lives aren't reduced to this meaninglessness by death. We long to make an impact on the world, and yet point three, no one can fathom what God has done from the beginning to the end. Point four. I know that there is nothing better for people than to be happy and to do good while they live. That each of them may eat and drink and find satisfaction in all all their toil. This is the gift of God. Uh, In other words, a hard-earned thirst needs a big cold beer, to quote Vic Bitter. There is real joy to be had in the moment. To do the hard labour and then to sit down and relax and enjoy it. To find satisfaction in what you've done. And yet, point five, I know that everything God does will endure forever. Nothing can be added to it 
and nothing taken from it. We still can't produce something that will last forever. It just doesn't work. We can't take the things of this world with us when we die. We can't add or subtract from God's plans. We can't add an extra tooth to the cog of his wheel. All we can do is try and be in sync with it, to be part of his plans. In other words, this inability to profit from life is not an unfortunate accident. It's actually part of God's plan. And he tells us why in chapter 3, verse 14. God does it so that people will fear him. Now let's hit the rewind button for a moment and go back in time to the Garden of Eden. God's created the world. He's created it good. There's no sin. There's no death. But then the man and the woman, they reject God. They declare that they will decide what's good and evil for themselves. And in Genesis chapter 3, verse 22, the Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. Well, that's Ecclesiastes, isn't it? That we're cut off from the tree of life. We can't eat and live forever. And so we're condemned to work the ground knowing that none of it will last. For dust we are and to dust we will return. Death strips us of any ability to profit from life. And that is a real, genuine curse. But on the other hand... God barring us from the tree of life is also a blessing. Because if we took and ate from the tree of life and lived forever in our rebellion against God, well, imagine what the world would be like then. Evil with no time limit on it. No ultimate consequences for sin. A world where Hitler and Stalin and Mao never died. Where there's no death and there's no fear of God. That's a scary, scary world to be part of. All too often we see the wicked get away with their wickedness in this life. Like the teacher says in chapter 3 verse 16. I saw something else under the sun. In the place of judgment, wickedness was there. In the place of justice, wickedness was there. And yet, if there's a time for everything, a time for this and a time for that, and this is the time for no judging, there must be a time for judgment coming up. If the time for judgment is not now, then it must be in the future. Verse 17, I said to myself, God will bring into judgment both the righteous and the wicked. For there will be a time for every activity, a time to judge every deed. So yes, death is a curse. It's not a good thing. It's not something to be celebrated. But it is also a profound blessing in a sinful world because it puts a time limit on individual evil. And more than that, death really focuses the mind, doesn't it? 
like we saw last week. You've got to think hard about what is life actually about. It can't just be about the accumulation of stuff because I can't keep it. It's all going to go. What's the purpose of it? God has done it so that people will fear him. Death and our inability to profit from life ought to push us towards God, the one who holds death and judgment in his hands. Well, we've hit the rewind button back to Genesis. Let's hit the fast forward button and jump from Ecclesiastes to Jesus. He's standing with his disciples and he's telling them a parable. So let's listen in. He says, The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. He thought to himself, What shall I do? I've no place to store my crops. Then he said, This is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and I'll build bigger ones. And there I will store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, You have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink and be merry. Rich man, lots of property. How do I get more property, build bigger barns, store more stuff, sell more stuff, make more money, take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry? And at that point, you realise this man is a fool. He might be a good businessman, might be a good farmer, but he quotes the first half of a famous biblical proverb, let us eat, drink, and be merry. But he's forgotten the second half. Does anyone know what it is? Yeah, for tomorrow we die. And that's exactly what happens to him. God said to him, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves, but is not rich towards God. That's Ecclesiastes, isn't it? You'll die and you'll have to leave everything that you've ever worked for. It doesn't matter how rich you were, how successful. So, says Jesus, don't spend your life storing up stuff. You're only going to lose it. Instead, be rich towards God. Or to use the language of Ecclesiastes, fear God. Yes, death is a curse. But it's also a profound blessing if it pushes us away from storing up treasure on earth to storing up treasure in heaven, being rich towards God. So how do we do it? How do you actually be rich towards God? What does it mean to fear him? How do we store up treasure in heaven? Well, fortunately, uh, Jesus actually tells us Because he says to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, or about your body, what you will wear, for life is more than food, and the body more than clothes. Consider the ravens, they do not sow or reap, they have no storeroom or barn, yet God feeds them. And how much more valuable you are than birds. Who of you by worrying can add a single hour to your life? Since you cannot do this very little thing, why do you worry about the rest? For the pagan world runs after all such things, and your father knows that you need them. But seek his kingdom, and these things will be given to you as well. 
He goes on. Do not be afraid, little flock, for your father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the poor. Provide purses for yourselves that will not wear out, a treasure in heaven that will never fail, where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. In other words, don't try to build your empire. Instead, seek God's kingdom. And in fact, Jesus tells his disciples that God has already been pleased to give them the kingdom. You think, well, how has he done that? The answer is, he's done it by giving them Jesus, the king of God's kingdom. Because in meeting Jesus, in knowing him, they know God. Because what is worth giving your life to? Is it the accumulation of stuff that you can never keep? Of experiences that will only ever fade and never quite let you escape the cold, clammy hand of death? No, the one thing actually worth giving your life to is God. And because of the death and resurrection, we can know God. The sin that we engaged in right back at the start in the Garden of Eden, our rejection of God, our insistence that we will decide what's good and evil for ourselves, well, Jesus paid for that on the cross by his death. He was cut off from the tree of life. He experienced God's curse in our place so that we could return to God and come under his blessing again. And in rising from the dead, he broke the power of death once and for all so that we can take and eat from the tree of life again, that we can be guaranteed of eternal life in a new creation, a creation that the Garden of Eden was only ever a pale shadow of. It's true, we still don't get to take our car or our photo albums or any of our possessions with us when we die. But actually, if you've understood the teacher of Ecclesiastes and you've understood Jesus, then you'll realise that those things are not what life was about anyway. They're just good gifts from God to enjoy now. But life's really about fearing God. Knowing him, delighting in him. That's what death should push us towards. And it's something that the power of death can never destroy. Because God, through his son Jesus, has destroyed the power of death. Everything else you'll need to leave behind when you die. But God, you don't need to leave behind. That relationship continues. And it will continue into the new creation when Jesus returns to unravel death once and for all. The teacher of Ecclesiastes is saying to us, don't fear death, but do let the reality of death drive you towards God. That's its purpose. To show us that Being rich towards ourselves is foolish. But being rich towards God, well, that's true wisdom. Don't store up treasure on earth. Store it up in heaven by trusting in Jesus who's broken the power of death, who's poured out God's blessing of forgiveness and eternal relationship with him. Accumulating stuff is not what life is about. 
Life's about knowing God. That's what actually pleases him. That's what differentiates the sinner from the one who pleases God. See, the sinner is just going through the motions. He's just storing up stuff. That's what his life is about and he has to hand it over. But to the one who pleases God, well, everything falls back into its right place. Work and pleasure and wisdom. You stop treating them like gods who you've got to serve. And you start treating them as just good. Good gifts from a good God. The sinner only accumulates stuff to hand it over to someone else. But the one who pleases God, the one who fears him, well, that's the person who trusts their life to Jesus, who accepts his offer of forgiveness and relationship with God. And when you do that, you discover that it's actually profoundly liberating because you can stop wasting your life trying to accumulate more and more stuff. It's not what life is about. You're actually freed up to be generous because you know that life is not about money and stuff. You can give it away to those who need it. And you can relax and be content with the good things that God has given you. You don't need to fear losing them anymore. You already knew you were going to lose them. And they were not what life was about. You know now that the gifts are good, but that ultimately it's the giver who's worth living for. It's not actually about striving for your own empire. That's futile. That's going to come crumbling down. It's about enjoying God. It's enjoying God's kingdom. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you, uh, in your wisdom, have cut us off from the tree of life to drive us back towards you. And Father, we thank you that through Jesus you have broken the power of sin and death forever, that we can have that relationship with you. So Father, we pray that you would help us to think clearly about life, to think rightly about it, to think truly about life and death that we might see that life is about you, both now and in eternity. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we've got a little bit of time. Uh, so does anyone have any questions that you want to ask about, uh, particularly about Ecclesiastes so far? Yes, please. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, sure. Yeah. So how does uh, Jesus' parable work if you're in absolute desperate poverty, um, you don't have what you need for life? 
Well, I think the first thing to realise is that the parable is not written to you. Um, it's addressed to people who are trying to accumulate more and more stuff. And Jesus just says, chill out. That's, that's not what life is about. Trust Jesus. Um, seek first his kingdom. So you've got to work out who it's addressed to. But secondly, um, if you are in that situation, well, that's actually really good news, isn't it? Because, yeah, the things of this life are passing away. You knew that they would eventually. You were going to reach your death. But actually, there's a kingdom waiting for you, which is very, very good news. 